Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 5th, 2021, and this is episode 2929 of the Survival Podcast. And it is time for an expert council Q&A show. I got a hell of a lineup for you today. Tons of variety and, and uh, stuff and a, and a huge cross-section of the expert council. Dr. Ken Berry on the risks and realities of listeria risk from some foods, specifically during pregnancy. Derek Von Pietro on to repair or to trade in an older Lexus. Nicole Sauce on thoughts on buying a bit more of an upscale coffee-making system. John Pugliano on ETFs being great for investors, but there are some things to really watch out for, like really misleading things. Jessica Dixie Mills on getting started with backpacking from couch potato to being doing your first overnight treks. Nick Ferguson on cottonwood pomplers for fodder. Doc Bones on dealing with IBS, that's irritable bowel syndrome. And a great crypto uh, segment from John Bush. And I will have for you guys today um, a really interesting quote that's going to fit really well with the song of the day. So I'll save my anchor segment all the way till the very end on that. I'll give you the quote now, though, so you can start thinking about it. And then this is, is going to relate to a Jimmy Buffett song. And I promise you at first you're going to be like, there's no connection there. There's actually a huge connection. Um, this is from Harvey Fierstein, and the quote is, Never be bullied into silence. Never allow yourself to be made a victim. Accept no one's definition of your life. Define yourself. Commentary on that, of course, will come during my anchor segment. Let's lead off uh, with some thoughts on risks from uh, certain foods, specifically for pregnant women with um, the disease known as listeria, which can be Really, really bad news uh, for someone who is pregnant. Hello, Jack, and all you survival nuts. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today for Tripasso. Uh, question, do you have any concerns for pregnant women regarding the bacteria Listeria, which is found in certain raw dairy products and lunch meat, uh, lives at cold temperature and is tasteless and odorless? Probably not a high risk for Listeriosis. Can Probably not a high risk for listeriosis can cause very bad outcomes in pregnancies. Thoughts? Yeah, so uh, several thoughts. The most common causes of listeria outbreaks in the past few years have been improperly washed lettuce, improperly washed and handled mushrooms, and uh, improperly handled soft processed cheeses. You, you definitely can get listeria from processed meats and raw dairy products if they're not handled properly. But if they're handled properly, it's actually much less likely to contract listeria from meat and dairy than it is from lettuce and other vegetables and mushrooms and then highly processed cheese. So I know that the uh, powers that be at the federal government pound on processed meats and, and raw dairy and listeria. But when you actually look at the, the actual numbers, you're much more likely to get it from lettuce and uh, cheap processed cheese and mushrooms that have been improperly washed. Hope this helps. This is Dr. Berry. See you next time. 
Next up, I have a question for Derek Bonpietro on making a decision about either repairing an older Lexus or maybe it's time to uh, trade that sucker in and get a little bit newer but still a used vehicle. What's happening, TSP listeners? Derek here from AffordableDCGenerators.com, home of the Affordable DC Power Supply Solution. I've got a question about cars, so let's get into it. Now, this one comes from Walker. Is it worth repairing my vehicle, or should I get something newer? Details. I have an 03 Lexus RX 300 with 200,000 miles. My wife primarily uses this to tote our two young children around town. We will have to pass our state inspection in August to keep this vehicle street legal. The AC clutch assembly just went out, and we'll need four new tires as well as some other minor repairs that I will do under the shade tree. This car runs fine, and I'm able to do many repairs with some help from a buddy. We just replaced the timing belt 6,000 miles ago, but these repairs I will use a local shop to do. It looks like it may end up costing about $3,500. Is it worth it to put the money into this car, or would I be better off looking into a used car in this market? Thank you for your time. All right. Now, the RX 300 was a very popular platform in its day. It was really a leader in the crossover SUV marketplace. So this is a SUV that's based on, like, the Camry and Sienna minivan platforms, although it's a Lexus all-wheel drive SUV. It's got a 3-liter V6, which was used in a bunch of other vehicles. And there are a couple of major problems with it, but overall, it's a very good vehicle. And it's Lexus quality as far as like the fit and finish and quiet of the ride. So it's a great platform to own and it's got 200,000 on it, which I don't know if you're the original owner or how many of those miles you've put on it, but you still got a good 100,000 miles left depending on the condition of some things. So the big ones, transmission, the first gen RX 300 for the first couple of years supposedly had transmission problems. Now I can tell you on the Toyota side, because I was a Toyota technician actually during this period, and I went on the teach in the oh, 2001 area and later on. So we never really had transmission problems with these vehicles, although Consumer Reports will write that the uh, first gen up to 2000 has above average numbers of transmission failures. Uh, so this might not even apply to yours. Now, I think realistically the big thing is probably maintenance. And if the transmission fluid hasn't been changed on a regular basis, this one might be a little more prone to failing. But it's going to be hit or miss. So if you've had good luck with it and it shifts okay and the fluid's in good shape and you've been taking care of it, probably would scratch that one off the list. You know, failures on the Toyota side of the line, which is the identical drive line, pretty much zero. Now, with the engine, pretty good engine, makes good power. Biggest problem with it is, again, fluid maintenance changes. So if you're not doing the oil change, these engines are notorious for sludging. I saw a lot of these on the car side, on the Toyota side, but it's the same engine in the Lexus. So these engines will sludge up if they will not, if they are not serviced accordingly. So if you're one of those people that likes to extend the oil change out, or maybe the previous owner did, you're going to get sludge buildup. And you can see it. If you just pull the oil cap off, you can look down, there's like a metal sheet metal baffle and then you can poke down a little further and see and if you've got like this gooey dark like really nasty grease looking stuff built up on it she's a sludge motor so i probably wouldn't want to go much past 200,000 miles with that without replacing it now if it's a little discolored you know it looks like maybe like coffee colored that's that's normal that you're going to have that tinge to any of the metal parts inside of an engine but we want to make sure that there's no heavy grease build up on it that's engine sludge and those engines are notorious for them aside from that pretty good platform
Now, can you sell it, get some money out of it, and go to something newer? Probably. But you're talking about doing some stuff that you do on a car that had half the amount of mileage. So tires, yeah, you're going to need tires on a car that's three years old or four years old. So I wouldn't necessarily consider tires and things like that brakes to be something that would push you into a newer vehicle. Now, you mentioned the timing belt you did with your buddy. Awesome. That's a big one. Timing belt water pump on these engines, you want to probably do somewhat religiously in the 60 to 90,000 mile range, depending on whether you're like highway or city. What happens is if the belt snaps, you're going to have some ugly problems and usually the water pump will start leaking and you got to take the belt off to get to it anyway. So this is the kind of engine where you just do timing belt, all the idler pulleys, the water pump, 90,000 miles, somewhere 60,000 miles and just call it good and peace of mind knowing that the belt's in good shape and the water pump is new and you've got many thousands of miles to go before you have to tackle that stuff again. And it's great that you have a buddy that can help you with that stuff because that's really one of the more expensive maintenance items that's on that particular engine. Now, you mentioned that your inspection is coming up. So if it just needs tires to pass inspection, throw some tires on it, get a sticker, kick it down the road, keep running it. I mean, honestly, they're really reliable vehicles, and I've seen plenty of them go above 300,000 miles. So if they're well taken care of, I'd say do what you got to do to get your sticker on it. Just keep driving it. Now, AC clutch. Now, you mentioned it says AC clutch assembly just went out and we'll need some other stuff to do inspection. So the AC clutch probably isn't going to be a maintenance item, excuse me, a repair item for uh, your safety inspection, but obviously your air conditioning is not going to work. So on the front of the compressor that's mounted on the engine, there's a pulley where the belt drives it, and there's a magnetic assembly that when the air conditioning goes on, this magnetic pulley locks up and basically allows the belt and pulley to spin the inside of the compressor. And you can hear this cycle on and off as the air conditioner is working. Now, when that clutch fails, it probably won't engage, and now you've got warm air when you click the air conditioning button. So there's two ways to fix this. The first way, which is probably going to be the mainstream way, if you took it to a dealership or an independent garage, 99% of the time they're going to go, we're going to replace the compressor. Now, good news is the compressor is about two to $300, depending on which one you go with. If you get a cheap one or you get a genuine Denso, which is the OEM quality brand that Toyota and Lexus uses, not bad. That That's pretty good pricing. Downside, you have to open the air conditioning system to replace it. So that means, quote unquote, an authorized shop has to evacuate the refrigerant. They've got to open the system, swap the compressor, and then they put a vacuum on the system to get all the moisture out of it, and then they recharge it with refrigerant. Hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Wouldn't expect anything less of a thousand dollars to do something like that with the cost of the compressor and all the labor. Now, you need to have a refrigerant handling license. So I had those when I was in the shop, and I was certified to work with vehicle refrigerants. You, as a quote-unquote shade tree mechanic, are not allowed to do that, but I don't see any refrigerant police driving around arresting people. So I own a vacuum pump. I know what I'm doing. I, I've had training. I've taught these classes, and I've had a vac. I have a gauge set for my vehicle, so I can actually open the system up change components, pull a vacuum on it, and then charge it using small cans, which you can buy at the auto parts store. Now, this is probably not something you'd want to do as an average do-it-yourselfer, but you can. You probably have 100 150 bucks into the parts between the pump and the gauge set. I would say if you and your buddy can replace the timing belt by yourselves, this is probably something you could do a little research on, watch some videos on YouTube, check it out, give it a try, save yourself some money. 
the absolute most critical part of this whole procedure is that we do not release refrigerant into the atmosphere. Sure, the stuff that's in the vehicle does not technically harm the ozone, but we don't want to just open the cap, push on the Schrader valve, and let the stuff come out. So if you're going to tackle air conditioning repair at home and you feel like you're competent enough to do it, have a shop evacuate the vehicle so that way there's nothing in the system. So when you get home and crack the line open, all you're going to hear is a little pfft, and there's nothing that's going to come out and harm the ozone. From there, you can swap out. So if you replace the compressor, you probably want to replace the dryer as well, so you can look that particular part up. Swap all that stuff out, change all the O-rings, put it back together, pull a vacuum on it, make sure it is airtight. So as long as it's holding a vacuum, you can then recharge the system using the small cans, and you're not going to have a leak and then leak out all your brand new refrigerant, of course now hurting the ozone as well. So it's all doable, you're not going to get arrested. Now, the other side of this repair is that if the clutch is just bad itself and the rest of the system is fine, so like AC was working great, it was nice and cold, and then boom, one day all of a sudden it doesn't work and the clutch doesn't work. Okay, that's a lot easier to fix because we can replace just the clutch. So it does require a special puller, but the clutch is probably going to cost you 80 to 100 bucks. Now, you can rent the puller. You might have to buy a puller if your parts store won't loan one out to you, but you can take the belt off, use this puller, pull the pulley off of it, the whole clutch assembly, compress the new one on. There are some special adjustments. You do need a feeler gauge. There is a, a gap that needs to be set. you got to have a feeler gauge, and sometimes you have to adjust the shim to get the clutch have the correct gap. So again, there's a little there's a little fine tuning in here, but you don't have to open up the AC system. The compressor stays intact with all the hoses and refrigerant. All you're doing is swapping the clutch assembly. So a lot less money-wise for the repair, a little bit involved, but you don't have to open up the refrigerant system. So that can save you some money, and it sounds like that's something you guys could probably tackle if you can do a timing belt. So I'd, I'd maybe consider doing that as long as everything was working fine up until that clutch failure, you're good. If the system was blowing warm or maybe not working right and then the clutch failed, well, you should probably have the system opened up anyway, replace the whole compressor assembly, have somebody charge it to the correct level and just start you off on the right foot again. So my personal recommendation, if you guys are comfortable doing some work on yourself, you're going to spend some money on some tires to get a sticker on your vehicle, I'd say kick it down the road. You probably have plenty of life left. All right, guys, thanks for the questions. Take care. Next up, I have a question for Nicole Sauce on Up In Your Coffee Game. Uh, this is a great one. Nicole, take it away. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here with an expert counsel question from a Gypsy about coffee makers. This, this is the question. I believe that either you or Nicole Sauce would be able to answer this question. I'm looking for a recommendation for a new coffee maker. I would really like to switch to a real coffee bean instead of red plastic tub from Wally World. That kind of made me throw up in my mouth a little bit. I currently use a Techniform Mocha Master that brews pretty good coffee but does not have a grinder or a timer. I'm aware that I could grind the coffee in a separate machine the night before and likely hook up some kind of timer, but I don't like the added complication. Is there a machine that has a hopper for coffee beans, has a timer that can be scheduled, grinds the beans, and makes a quality cup of coffee? This is from Gypsy. Well, I'm going to take this from the perspective because it it depends on what you want and what your end goal is because it sounds like your big picture goal is yummy coffee without a huge weight in the morning. So I'm going to take it from that perspective right now. And I'm going to start with if you're getting things out of a red tub in Wally World and putting it through the kind of machine you're putting it through, which is a very, very nice coffee maker, by the way. 
you're losing out on what you could be tasting in your existing coffee maker. Even craft, if you if you were to go out and get craft roasted beans from a local roaster, have them grind it at the shop for a drip maker and put it in that machine. Compared to the red tub that you're talking about, you're gonna get a fantastic, fan freaking tastic cup of coffee experience, unlike anything you've had. And the coffee ma- machine you have has been certified by the SCA, which is the Specialty Coffee Association, for speed of water going through it, temperature of water, and all of that. So it's it's a nice machine. That said. It's not giving you an efficient cup of coffee in the morning, and you're interested in transitioning to whole bean. Here are your options. And I'm going to come from this perspective of I have tested two of the machines I'm talking to you about, but you may end up wanting a different kind of machine. The first question to answer is how much coffee do I want in the morning? Do I want 16 ounces of drip coffee, or are espresso drinks nice? If you want something that will give you a nice cup of drip coffee that is programmable and has a built-in grinder, go on to Amazon and look for Cuisinart seems to be the best option right now. I looked at the higher-end machines and didn't find one I liked. They have drip coffee makers that have a grinding hopper on top and a programmable screen with an insulated uh, carafe underneath so your coffee's not just getting burned on the burner while you take a shower or whatnot. And those are not very expensive. You're talking anywhere from 70 bucks to 200 bucks to get something like that that's going to make a nice cup of coffee. The thing to look for here, and I have a Cuisinart and I have this one, is a cone-shaped drip area rather than the flat um, sort of cup that you that you see. So look for a cone-shaped one. I actually have used that coffee maker. It makes a nice cup of coffee as long as you keep it descaled, which means running some vinegar water through it from time to time and clean it every time and don't leave you know the filter in there to mold all day because yuck. So that's that's like one category and that will get you you know six to twelve eight ounce cups of coffee that you can pour into your commuter mug, jump in your car and go to work, or put in your commuter mug, walk around your property and work on your homestead, or or sit by your computer, or whatever you want to do. The other option, which reaches your goal but is not programmable, and in my opinion makes a superior coffee experience, is to move out of the drip coffee world, keep your drip coffee maker in case you ever want to have drip coffee, or, you know, whatever, you have friends over, you want to make a big pot of coffee, And move into the world of espresso. There are fully automatic espresso makers that are doing a great job. And it starts by grinding the beans, tamps it, and the espresso comes out. You don't have to deal with packing your own little espresso pod and making the mess from that. And if you over compact it, having a big watery mess anywhere, because they've taken a lot of the mystery out of espresso making. So if what you're looking is a fast cup of coffee in the morning or a fast espresso drink in the morning, you can get a fully automated espresso maker in the same price range as your current coffee maker, and it will do a pretty good job. Is it going to give you the quality cup of a barista that has a $3,000 machine? Eh, but it's 
I'm going to say it's close enough for rock and roll. I use one here, and I like my coffee a lot. I have a variety of espresso makers, but the coffee maker I use the most is a fully automated espresso maker. And here's how this works. I have tried two varieties, the DeLonghi Magnifica XS, which I have used since about 2013, before they were even on the market. I have loved the heck out of that machine. It does both a cup of coffee and espresso, so that's all gauged by how much water goes through the beans on that. The benefits of this is you walk into your kitchen, you hit on, you walk to your cupboard, and you get a a coffee cup out of your cupboard, and you walk back to the machine, and what has happened while you did that is it turned on, heated the water, did an initial clean of the pour spout, and then you push a button, and you hear it go, boop. Boop, and your coffee's in the cup. So I don't see a reason to have that on a timer because I just walk in, turn it on, grab my cup, hit go, and it goes. The thing about this is you have to keep up on adding water, coffee, and cleaning out the spent grounds of the the coffee machine, and that takes a little bit of time but not much. The benefits of the DeLonghi, in my opinion... DeLonghi is really good at making pressure-driven espresso makers that are consistent and quality. This thing is a workhorse. I had it from 2013 till this year. I've had it repaired a couple of times. The computer finally gave out this year, and I decided to move on to something else, and I decided to try a non-DeLonghi. The other one I have now had personal experience with is the Espressione coffee maker. It's a concierge, fully automated bean-to-cup stainless steel espresso machine with automated shutoff. For me, automated shutoff is just really important because I get distracted every day. It does the same thing. It has water. It has beans. The only difference between it and the DeLonghi is that it's not made by DeLonghi, first of all. It's a lot newer than the one I've tested, and it only does espresso. So I can't do the coffee. So if I want a cup of coffee from this, I make an espresso, and then I go over to its little steam, like its little hot water spout, and I have an Americano. That's the way you do coffee with that machine. But it's the same exact experience. On, walk to the cabinet, get a cup of coffee, come back, hit the long pull espresso button. It makes all of the same noises as the DeLonghi. And it gets me a cup of coffee. And the reason it makes that sequence of noises, by the way, guys, is it grinds the coffee, taps it in the little thing, puts a tiny bit of water to moisten up the beans, lets them sit for a second to absorb the, the moisture so that you have a consistent amount of time of the water hitting those beans on the way through. And then it pulls your cup of espresso Benefits of the DeLonghi is that it's more flexible. I definitely trust the quality of the machine to last for a long time. And it is, uh, hands down, one of the more popular automated espresso makers in, in the price range of under 600 bucks. Yes, I know. Somebody just like threw up in their mouth because they heard me say 600 bucks for a coffee maker. The concierge fully automated, um, Bean to cup, stainless steel, espresso machine, which is the Espressione, which is what I'm using now, benefits. Uh, so the negative parts over DeLonghi is it doesn't do coffee. Benefits are, oh, and I'm not sure it's going to last as long. I'm, I'm questioning the quality a little bit. We'll see. I'll know in about five years if it's lasted five years. 
It is at a price point of about 450 bucks, which is a little cheaper than the DeLonghi. And from a cleaning it standpoint, and this is something that a lot of appliance people, they need to, they need to hire me to consult them on how to design their machines so that you don't drive Nicole sauce crazy cleaning it. So the concierge has fewer nooks and crannies to clean when you're cleaning the machine. And all of the parts come out very easily. It's like a component piece. And it's super easy to clean. So the amount of time it would take me to clean a DeLonghi is about 15 minutes to clean it all out. The amount of time it takes me to, to clean the concierge is about two and a half minutes. And that's because every piece comes out and it doesn't have lots of corners and what would be beautiful form factor, which makes nooks and crannies. And nooks and crannies in the kitchen and in appliances are terrible because you have to get in there with a toothbrush. It's really annoying. So I would say either of those machines is a good choice. I'm going to send Jack a link to three machines. One, programmable uh, grinding drip machine by Cuisinart, and then the Concierge, and then also the DeLonghi. You can make your decision. Let me know if you like it because it's always good for me to hear feedback. And, guys, if you're listening to this going, no, I have the solution, I have the solution, jump on the comments of the show and put it in there, and we'll keep the conversation going. And if you liked this segment and it was helpful and you want to say thank you, head over to hollerroast.com to get some of your own craft-roasted coffee shipped straight to your door. Make it a great week. Well, and Nicole did send links to two of the uh, machines, the more kind of sort of automated espresso ones. One's about 300 bucks, and the other one's like 1200 bucks. Anyway, I have links to both of them in the uh, video notes if anybody wants to check them out. Next up, we have a, uh, a warning on, well, I would call it bad, not bad, let's say inaccurate marketing when we're looking at investing in certain ETFs. Does that make any sense? It will when you get done listening to John Pugliano. Well, hello, TSP. For our financial segment today, I want to give you a caution about investing in exchange-traded funds, which are commonly referred to as ETFs. Before I get to the warning, I want to emphasize here that I'm a huge fan of investing with ETFs. Whether you're using it, to get broad diversification by investing in an ETF index, or whether you're trying to get a concentrated position through the use of a sector-focused ETF, I think they're wonderful products, and I think they fill a niche for not only the aspiring investor, but also sophisticated investors. Okay, but having said all that, the big warning I want to give you about ETFs is like any investment, know what you're investing in. Just because an ETF is named a particular type of fund, doesn't necessarily mean that that name has a direct correlation to reality. So just like you wouldn't judge a book by its cover, don't judge an ETF by the name of the fund. Let me give you some examples here. First off, in the area of ESG investing, that's environmental social governance. Big buzzword on Wall Street right now. Many types of traditional and alternative investments have been bundled together and packaged under ESG nomenclature where the financial product is supposed to have a positive impact on things like, you know, the environment or social justice or or some other issue. Being the cynical skeptic that I am, I think that anything that comes under the banner of ESG investing has a lot more to do with marketing and fees that Wall Street can charge you as opposed to how they're going to help any underlying social issues. In any case, let's look at one of these ESG funds. And the one I want to highlight here is the Gender Diversity Index. 
Now, it's appropriately uses the symbol she, S-H-E. I think they would be more gender inclusive if they called it Z. But in any case, the question should be that if you're going to invest in a fund that you think is providing gender diversity, you need to look at the underlying investments within that fund. And when I look at those company holdings, I don't see gender diversity. Let me just give you a couple examples. The top 10 holdings of that fund are highly concentrated to the extent that those 10 companies represent about 40% of the fund's overall holdings. And let's look at a couple of those names. One of them is Visa. Now, I'm sure Visa is a fine company and they have a fantastic record on gender issues. But do you really think that Visa is any more woke than MasterCard? I don't think so. Well, how about another name on this list? Well, there's Johnson & Johnson. And again, I'm sure they're a fine, upstanding company that has excellent gender relations for their employees. But I really doubt that they're any better than another major company like Procter & Gamble. A very inappropriate company I find on this list is Wells Fargo. Now, I really doubt that Wells Fargo has any better gender issues than a major banking company like J.P. Morgan Chase. If you know Wells Fargo's history, I would find it hard to believe that they could get a gold star in just about any ranking. And so as far as the Gender Diversity Index Fund, I think it's nothing more than a marketing plea from Wall Street to sell products. If you dig down and look at these holdings, this fund basically is no different than a large cap fund. And if you compare it to just about any other large cap funds out there, for example, Charles Schwab has a really good broad large cap index fund. The symbol is SCHB. If you compare that with she, the two funds perform about the same over any given length of time. Sometimes one slightly outperforms the other, but the difference isn't significant. They have about the same beta rating, which means that they generally track the broad S&P 500. The difference is, is that with the Schwab product, you get more overall investment diversification The top 10 holdings only represent about 20% as opposed to 40% in the She Fund. The She Fund pays a substantially lower dividend. It's only about 1%, where the Schwab Fund is nearly 1.4%. And then finally, when it comes down to management fees, and I think this is really the big area that Wall Street promotes these ESG funds to begin with, is, is that they can charge more for them. So the Schwab annual management fee on their broad index fund is only three basis points. That's 0.03%. While the Gender Diverse Index, which arguably is no better and worse in a lot of cases, charges a full 20 basis points, so that's 0.20%. That's nearly seven times more in terms of expenses. And the shenanigans of fund naming isn't limited to ESG investing, It's across the board. Let me give you an example of a very popular fund. It has the symbol XLY. It's a sector-specific fund, and it focuses on consumer discretionary companies. Now, the consumer discretionary sector can be a very good fund to invest in, especially when you're in the early stages of a cyclical recovery in the economy. So this is definitely an area that an investor would want to look at. But specifically in terms of this fund, it doesn't give you the broad diversification that you might think it would by its name. 
Diversification is definitely lacking because if you look at the top 10 holdings of this fund, they make up nearly 70% of the overall value of the fund. And the top two holdings account for over 36% of the holdings. That would be nearly 23% in Amazon and over 13% in Tesla. Now, while Amazon and Tesla are fine companies and they definitely represent consumer discretionary spending, in my opinion, XLY should have a smaller concentration in a larger sector of consumer discretionary type companies to protect against big swings in any one of those companies. So it isn't that XLY is a bad fund. I have used it in the past. I plan to use it in the future. But if you're investing in one of these sector-focused funds, make sure you're aware on what the underlying companies are that the fund invests in and in what concentrations, and just make sure you're receiving the diversification that you think you are. Another thing to be aware of with ETF investing is when you use these sector-specific funds to invest in a commodity, for example, like gold or oil, you have to realize that for these funds to track these particular commodities, they have to do it either by owning the underlying commodity which means paying for storage and transportation and security and all the other costs that would go to managing and handling that commodity. Or the fund has to use paper derivative products, for example, like futures or options contracts. And those have expiration dates and can come with large transaction fees, especially in very volatile markets. And so those costs whether they be from the handling and the storage of the commodity or from tracking the commodity with derivatives, that comes with a cost, and that cost is going to be passed on to the investors in that fund. And so you may own an ETF that tracks the price of oil, and you look at oil and it's up 50%. Well, your particular ETF may have only appreciated 25 or 35%. Or even worse, the corollary to that is, is that the price of oil may be down 10%, but your ETF that tracks oil is down 25%. I'm running out of time, but let me just finish up by saying the thing that you really want to be knowledgeable in and something I think that the average investor or even the experienced investor should really avoid when it comes to exchange-traded funds, and that's using funds that are inverse-based or use some type of leverage to magnify their positions. So, for example, there are double or triple inverse funds that would short the market or short a particular commodity. While these funds are generally safer and provide less risk than owning the underlying futures contract yourself, they still come with plenty of risk. And because the value decay rate can be so high, those prices of the funds can be extremely volatile and you could lose a lot of money, particularly if you hold that position over the long term because the decay rate will be faster as the futures contracts approach their expiration date. Well, hey, as always, with any investment, do your homework, know what you're investing in, and make sure you know how much you can lose if the trade goes bad. Well, hey, as always, I appreciate your investing questions. This is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. Yeah, all of this makes me think of something I recently saw. One of my listeners sent me an email uh, of a new ETF now available from, uh, I think it was from Fidelity. And it said you can now basically invest your retirement money, et cetera, in Bitcoin. Um, that it's a good, it provides Bitcoin exposure. When I looked at it, it was a pretty thin fund. It was made up of exactly two securities, the Grayscale Trust and PayPal. 
PayPal's pretty damn limited to an exposure to uh, gaining from Bitcoin. Um, you might wonder, as I did, since you know there's a publicly traded company, you can throw it in any ETF you want to right now, and Coinbase, why not use Coinbase in there? And I guess that maybe they felt it didn't specifically give um, exposure to Bitcoin, but rather crypto, uh, since Coinbase has a massive exposure across the, the whole spectrum. I don't know, maybe they're going to be adding to it, but that's an example there of, you know, there is no official Bitcoin ETF yet. We talked about that recently at Miyagi Mornings. Um, this is being marketed as a Bitcoin fund. It, this is exactly what I said would happen, but it's pretty limited. It's not like they put, you know, you could have done better. You could have put some micro strategy in there. You could have put Coinbase in there. Just because they're exposed to other crypto doesn't mean that they're not exposed to Bitcoin as a dominant currency. Uh, there's definitely some other companies that you could you could argue would give you exposure to Bitcoin on their balance sheet, uh, but I guess everybody's got to start somewhere. But that's an example of that one was really easy to see through, but a lot of people won't even look. So just be careful that you're not buying marketing and you're actually buying the investment that you think you are. I know that maybe some of you, when he was talking about the the woke fund, I guess you'd call it there. Um, so what, you know? Well, it's just an example, and it's an example of the games that these people play uh, and how the government claims they're protecting you, and clearly they're not. Uh, they're protecting them. That's how it works. Uh, next up, we have a, uh, a segment on getting started backpacking with Jessica Dixie Mills. Hey, TSPers, Dixie, a.k.a. Jessica Mills, here from Homemade Wanderlust over in YouTube land to talk with you a little bit about beginning backpacking today. Now, I don't have any specific questions to answer, but I wanted to provide those of y'all who are interested in backpacking with some resources. First, I know how hard it can be to be a beginner at something. When I was living out in Colorado several years back before I started backpacking, it just seemed like it was so hard to get into the outdoors community. I mean, I grew up spending time outside, but everybody there is so advanced at skiing, snowboarding, rock climbing, etc., that it, it almost seems like they come out of the womb with those skills. <laughs> so it was just kind of hard to meet folks that I could get to come back to square one with me. So I can really relate to outdoors activities in that way, you know, from the beginner standpoint. So I didn't start backpacking until I was 28 years old, and my first trip was a through hike of the Appalachian Trail. So I really kind of fed myself to the wolves with that one, and I've definitely learned some lessons the hard way. Uh, so the reason that I am so adamant about wanting to get people out there to backpack is I really think that if you can walk, and as Jack says, if you can fog a mirror, then you can backpack for the most part, or at least go out hiking to some extent, you know, day hikes. But I think that spending time in nature and getting back to our roots really makes us better people. It's good for us mentally, physically. It gives us that quiet time that we don't make for ourselves in everyday normal life. And I think that, you know, day hiking, but as you increase to overnight backpacking trips, can be really like a form of meditation. And it just gets more intense as you continue to backpack. But anyway, so I want to include some links to some of my videos today. And all of my content is free, so this isn't like some 
way to try to hook you into paying for something. This is literally just videos on YouTube because I do think, as cliche as it sounds, that the more people spend time outdoors, the more the world becomes a better place, and especially with things like hiking and backpacking. So anyway, one of the videos I'm going to give for uh, Jack to put in the show notes is essentially a transitioning from the couch to backpacking video. Um, I talk about how you can build up mentally and physically and then also piece by piece gather your gear to go from, you know, maybe, like I said, sitting on the couch to doing daily walks to day hikes to the first overnight trip to a multi-overnight trip. And then I also have another video that talks about preparing for your first backpacking trip. And I know a lot of y'all uh, out there in this community are probably not strangers to spending time in the woods or being alone by yourself in the dark. But if you're new to this community and you are a beginner at those things too, then you know these videos um, I think could certainly be useful to you. But even for those of y'all who are maybe a few steps ahead of the game already, I think that you can find some value uh, in these videos if you're interested in, in backpacking. And But, you know, it, I've found through backpacking that so many adults that think, you know, I'm not afraid of the dark, uh, find that things are a little bit different when you're not in the controlled space of your home and you've thrown yourself out there in the wilderness. And I swear that caterpillars can sound like grizzly bears outside of your tent. Uh, but also, I have a three-hour video, so those other videos I was talking about, those would be much shorter, <laughs> much shorter. Um, but a three hour video that covers all of the ins and outs of backpacking gear in detail. Um, you know, all the different shelter options, trekking pole options. And I mean, it can be like trying to drink from a fire hose, but all of my videos have timestamps. So you can skip to certain topics if you want to, you just look in the video description and the timestamps are there. And um, and then I'm also going to throw in a budget gear video because I know that a lot of people who are thinking about backpacking sit down and they start looking at some of the prices of the gear and they're like, you know what? Never mind. I'm out. <laughs> I don't I don't want to invest in something that I'm not sure that I'm really going to love. So I'll put that budget gear video in there. And I think that that can also be very useful for folks who've got children in scouting, especially the Boy Scouts who are more involved and like to go out on actual camping, backpacking trips. Um, then if you're not wanting to put a whole lot of money into your kid's backpacking trip and then they're like, you know what, I really don't dig this because kids can, you know, do that sometimes. But anyway, so yeah, I, I, I do think that the more we as a society get back to our roots, get back to, you know, being dirty and stinky and staring at trees that the healthier we'll all be for. And there are actually some studies uh, that, that say that people who spent time not just out walking, obviously I think exercise is good, but actually moving away from an urban space into a green space uh, showed less activity in a part of the brain that can be associated with depression and anxiety. Uh, so it really seemed that it would help reduce depression and anxiety by spending some time in nature. So anyway, that's all I have to tell you all today. All I have to share, I'm going to step off the soapbox now. But I hope everybody is doing well. And if you do have any questions about 
blogging, well, vlogging, YouTube stuff, backpacking, um, jumping ship from an engineering job to go be a stinky hiker in the woods, then I'm happy to help you with those questions. Just get them into Jag. Thanks, y'all. See you later. Good stuff from Jess. Uh, we could definitely use some more questions for Jessica if you guys want to get them into me. Remember, you can send questions in for any member of the Expert Council. Just send it to me, Jack at the com. Put TSPC Expert in the subject line. And then when you uh, fill out that email, say, you know, my question is for Expert Council member, fill in the blank. My question is one sentence, then hit return, then give me your details. If you do that, we'll know what you're asking. You'll be more likely to get a great answer. In fact, you'll be more likely to get an answer at all. Trust me, I've been doing this a while. Next up, we have a question for Nick Ferguson on uh, cottonwood poplar trees. Hey there, Nick Ferguson here with another expert counsel answer, and this one is about fodder trees. Let me just jump right into it. Question for Nick, uh, are eastern cottonwood poplars useful for fodder like the hybrid poplar? Details, Nick, I got trees from you this spring and the poplars are doing well. I'm wondering if the eastern cottonwood poplars I have sprouting all over my property are as useful as the hybrid or if I should just focus on the hybrid. I have hundreds of these now that I know what they are. Is there anything they're useful for that would demand a market value. Thanks, John. All right. Uh, the first question was, are they useful for fodder? Yes. They're pretty much just as useful from a nutrition standpoint, although they won't grow as fast. But if you have hundreds of them already growing, just, you know, roll with it. Cultivate those trees as well as the hybrids. What do the hybrids have that the natives don't? Well, basically, they'll grow faster and push more new growth every year compared to the wild type you have growing locally. So, I mean, if you're cramped for space, you'll get more growth out of the same square footage if you're just growing the hybrid poplars. And, I mean, they grow so easily from cuttings. Man, I just, you know, if you're at all cramped for space, I would stick with the hybrids. Uh, but by all means, you know, get growing with the local resources you have. You might be able to make a quicker start by starting to manage those natives or the locally growing type that you have, and then slowly expand out as you have the plant material to get more of the hybrids growing. Um, and, you know, I try to make a point to mention this every single time I promote what I'm selling. First, take stock of what you have locally if you're working on a tight budget. I, I totally understand. If you just want to buy from me, that's fine. Whatever. Um, but you likely have something growing on your property or somewhere in your region that's going to be useful for you, whether that's poplar or whether that's willow or mulberry. I mean, white mulberry grows just about everywhere in the USA. So learn to grow cuttings and harvest local resources for free first, especially if you're on a budget. But, you know, if you want to have positively identified plants, that you can know for certain are going to work for you, then by all means, get a tree pack from me. Or, you know, if you're looking to plant hundreds, find a wholesale grower and buy them by the hundreds. Or, shoot, buy some seed and learn to cold stratify the seed and plant 10,000 tree seeds and plant a whole fodder forest. The second question was, is there anything useful that demands a market value? Well, uh, I mean, most people consider cottonwoods to be a trash tree so they're they're not a huge market value um 
they grow relatively fast. So, you know, if you're growing the hybrid poplar because you're looking for that really fast growth, you can normally get, uh, I think numbers I've seen are somewhere around double the BTUs per acre. If you're growing the hybrid poplar for fuel wood or firewood as compared to oak. So that's double the BTUs per acre per year. So, you know, if you're trying to cut it and then keep reharvesting and then let it grow up enough to harvest again, then you'll get more out of uh, the poplar. Now, of course, it burns a lot faster and doesn't burn as clean, so your mileage may vary. You know, your market may not want that. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a little bit more dis- difficult question to answer. You know, you can grow the poplar as a coppice tree system. You can cut it every winter, delimb the shoots, and you can use those shoots to plant more uh, and sell to other people if you're finding success with it. Or you could dry those shoots and uh, burn them in a kiln and make charcoal. Then you can either sell the charcoal or you can combine that charcoal with manure or compost. You can make biochar and you could sell that product. Uh, you could harvest the green leaves. You could dry them and then put them through a hammer mill and pelletizer to create your own leaf pellet. And depending on your market, you might be able to combine the leaf content with maybe some medicinal herbs, uh, things like mealworms, and sell premium chicken treats or food, you know, chicken food, to, you know, yuppies who have pet chickens. And apologies if you're listening to this and you happen to be a yuppie with pet chickens. You know, I, I guess I've had a couple chickens I was pretty fond of myself, so I can somewhat get on your level. But, you know, let's be real. If you've named all of your chickens, you know you'd probably buy Beyond Organic specially formulated pellet treats for the tiny dinos. You know you would. And you'd pay $20 a pound for it, too. So, I know that's a quick answer, but, you know, sometimes these questions are quick to answer. Hope that helped you out, John, and hopefully it sparked maybe an interest in some more of you guys and gals out in the TSP community to get out and try to identify a few good trees in your area. I'm Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com and RarePlantStore.com. Do good things. Good stuff from Nick Ferguson. Next up, we have a uh, question on IBS, Irritable Bowel Syndrome, for Doc Bones. And then I'm going to throw another resource uh, from uh, another council member we, we've heard from today already, Dr. Ken Berry. I've got a resource from him on another way to approach this. Hi, Joe MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness, plus the co-author of the upcoming fourth edition, fourth edition of the survival medicine handbook and designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel is from Chuck, who writes, I have IBS, that's irritable bowel syndrome, and I'm tired as hell of dealing with it. Is there a way to cure, mitigate it, lessen the effects? Details. I'm a long-time sufferer of IBS. Doctors can't seem to find a reason or cause. I can't say if it's IBS-C, IBS-D, or some combination thereof. I'll explain these in a few minutes. Uh, I had colonoscopies, GI with contrasts, barium enemas. Name the tests. I may have done it. The doctors tried to blame alcohol, but when I do test my symptoms by going zero alcohol, the symptoms persist as usual, little or no change. Cannabis helps, as in the pain mitigation and depression mitigation. Yes, one can become very depressed due to IBS. Perpetual stomach pain causes ambition levels to drop. I often lose two to three days of getting stuff done because I'm sitting around with an achy stomach. 
There is a family history. Mother died at 45 after years of colitis from septic shock. Father, sister, and I all have diverticulosis. Both my sister and father almost died from intestinal ruptures and septic shock within the last 15 years. Luckily, both did survive. I have cut out coffee six years clean at this point. It helped some, but stopping coffee didn't cure me. I have also experimented with zero alcohol. Uh, He mentioned that. Uh, No major change, but that seems to be all my doctors want to discuss, that and my liver. The plus size is less alcohol helped me lose weight and saves money too, so I'm okay with less alcohol. My liver is a little fatty, which also can be caused by being overweight and not just alcohol use. I am moderately overweight at just under 200 pounds at five foot seven. I recently lost some. I've almost been as heavy as 230. I have been as light as 160. Weight seems to not affect the issue much. I do plan to continue with weight loss with an ultimate goal of 160, which is appropriate for my height. I did have a stressful job, but I've been retired for five years now. Frankly, my life doesn't have much stress. It's not stress-related, in my opinion. I'm at my wit's end. I have to plan trips outside my home with a bathroom in mind. I'm lucky in that I retired young, although the symptoms were there even before I retired. But I'd like to not spend my retirement on the toilet. I'd love to have even a week of remission from this. Any help or suggestions would be appreciated. Chuck, I'm so sorry you're dealing with this issue, and it's a tough nut to crack. What is IBS? Irritable bowel syndrome is a common disorder seen in about 10% of the population that affects the large intestine. Signs and symptoms include cramping, abdominal pain, bloating, gas, diarrhea, or constipation, or both. IBS is a chronic condition and usually needs long-term follow-up. Your family history, stressful work, diverticulosis, and other factors put you at high risk for it. Patients generally appear to be healthy. An examination of the abdomen may reveal tenderness, particularly in the left lower quadrant, and nothing more. This leads doctors to fall back on advice like stop your bad habits, lose weight, eat healthy, and don't drink or smoke, etc. Of course, if you were drinking enough alcohol to make you obese, some of that advice is not really a bad thing, especially if your liver isn't in great shape. There are three types of irritable bowel syndrome or IBS. They include IBS-C, that's IBS constipation. This comes with stomach pain and discomfort, bloating, abnormally delayed or infrequent bowel movements, and lumpy hard stools. Then there's IBS-D, IBS diarrhea. This comes with stomach pain and discomfort, an urgent need to move your bowels, abnormally frequent bowel movements, or loose watery stool. And then there's IBS mixed, which might be your case which has both constipation and diarrhea. Patients may have symptoms of abnormal stool passage, like straining, urgency, feeling of incomplete evacuation. They could pass mucus or complain of bloating or abdominal distension in general. The diagnosis is made using what's known as the ROME, R-O-M-E, criteria. The ROME criteria requires the presence of abdominal pain for at least one day a week for the last three months, along with at least two of the following, pain related to defecation, pain associated with the change in frequency of defecation, and pain, pain associated with the change in consistency of stool. Chuck, your doctors can't find a cause because no one has, at least so far, the cause of irritable bowel syndrome is unknown. It tends to begin in late teen or early adult years and has periods where pain and GI disturbances are less and some where there is more. Diet, medication, hormones, or stress may trigger or worsen the symptoms. Historically, the disorder was often considered to be purely psychosomatic. This is because some patients with IBS seem to have something called an aberrant illness behavior. That is, they expressed emotional conflict as a gastrointestinal complaint, usually abdominal pain. As we learn more, IBS may be better understood as a combination of factors.
One I strongly believe in is a major factor, what I call intestinal hyperalgesia. That means hypersensitivity to even relatively normal intestinal movement and gas. People experience pain as individuals with the same injury causing more pain in some than others. I believe this is because of a hypersensitive pathway from the brain to the pain fibers or maybe the other way around. Some people have more pain due to an as yet uncertain abnormality in the nerve supply of the intestines. That's my belief. In IBS, patients who have had an intestinal infection like diverticulitis, a state of low-grade inflammation may exist as a factor. And also, maybe there is an autoimmune response affecting the nerves that might be at work in some patients. Other people are just plain misdiagnosed. Mild diverticulitis, for example, can be confused with IBS in some patients. That could possibly be happening in your situation. IBS can also be mimicked by conditions such as lactose intolerance, drug-induced diarrhea, symptoms after gallbladder surgery, laxative overuse, parasitic diseases like giardiasis, gastritis, colitis, enteritis, all sorts of stuff. Early inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis may also be involved. In those with constipation, hypothyroidism is a possibility. In women, ovarian cysts or fibroids may play a role. In any case, all these should not be ruled out before deciding the patient has IBS. So full diagnostic testing like you had, Chuck, is a good idea, especially in those who have had first onset at old age, have fever, unintended weight loss, rectal bleeding, or vomiting. There may be something else going on. Strategies for treatment, close monitoring of diet to avoid gas-producing and diarrhea or constipation-producing foods may help. This diet is known as FODMAP, F-O-D-M-A-P, and eliminates a lot of possible triggers that worsen IBS symptoms. Probiotics may improve symptoms and decrease bloating and gas. There should be an appropriate fiber intake like psyllium and hydration for the current situation a person is dealing with in terms of their IBS drug therapy to deal with the dominant symptoms of the time, understanding that these may be on and off. Antispasmodic medicines like hyoscyamine taken before meals might be helpful. Others have tried treating with medications used for ulcerative colitis or Crohn's. Of course, Imodium is an option for occasional use for diarrheal episodes, and laxatives and other chronic constipation meds may help for episodes of constipation. Luxadiline is useful for diarrhea-related IBS as it slows down the motion of the gut, and thus the discomfort associated with intestinal contractions. Unfortunately, this last drug is not for those with a history of significant alcohol use. From a supplement standpoint, some recommend L-glutamine. In an eight-week study published online in May 2019 in the journal called Gut, those who took oral glutamine supplements safely reduced all major IBS-related symptoms. Commercially available combination supplements like Aberogast, I-B-E-R-O-G-A-S-T, claims to help with IBS. Peppermint oil and ginger are old remedies that may help with GI issues in general. From a psychological standpoint, hypnotherapy and acupuncture have been used with some success, certainly worth a shot, and some people swear by yoga, meditation, and mindfulness. From a psych drug standpoint, tricyclic antidepressants have been used not just for their effect on depression, but because they have an effect against nerve origin pain. Like I said, Chuck, IBS is a tough nut to crack, but some of the things I mentioned might be options you haven't yet explored. Best of luck. I'm rooting for you. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do you know our brand new, greatly expanded and revised fourth edition 
of the Survival Medicine Handbooks, almost ready to be on the shelves. Check it out at store.doomandbloom.net. It's available for pre-order if you want a signed copy. If not, look for it on Amazon in short order. Make sure you're getting the brand new fourth edition. Thanks again. So, so my first thought was, I wonder if keto would be the way to do this. And, of course, I'm also, you know, the kind of person that's not arrogant when it comes to, like, what I think works, works for everybody for everything. And, you know, my, the more difficult digestion for some people uh, of protein or fat maybe make it worse. You know, I don't want to tell somebody that. So I wanted to, I wanted to see if Ken had spoken on this. So I looked up Ken Berry's stuff on IBS, and I didn't even listen to the, the video that I've, I've linked in the show notes today. I really didn't have time to this morning, but I got the gist of it. And it looks like Ken is saying in this video that one of the chief problems could be the maldigestion of fructose or fruit sugars. I'm going to tell you that, you know, as much as you heard from Doc Bones on alcohol here and alcohol being a factor in this, that the way the liver processes fructose is almost exactly the same as the way the liver processes alcohol. And it is the same kind of all-or-nothing show. Like when it's doing, one of the problems with drinking alcohol and losing weight is while your body's processing an alcohol, it can't deal with sugar in your blood. Well, when your body's dealing with fructose, it can't deal with other sugars in your blood. And so there may be definitely something to it. You can watch the video for yourself if you want to know more. It is in the show notes today. Uh, next up, I have a question on how Ethereum is going to work, given some of the changes that are coming out of it, including burning ETH uh, versus the supply side of things from John Bush. Hey there, TSP listeners. John Bush to answer a question about Ethereum, specifically about this new EIP, Ethereum Improvement Proposal 1559. Um, before I answer that, I want to invite you guys. I'm doing a free webinar this upcoming week, and you can learn about it at buildwealthoptout.com, buildwealthoptout.com. I'll be talking about cryptocurrency, how it can benefit people, how you can use cryptocurrency without screwing it up, and how there's tons and tons of people that are using cryptocurrency to create a more decentralized, better world. That's buildwealthoptout.com. Okay, so the question is, with ETH new upgrades, there's a potential for coins to be burned at a higher rate than they are produced. Could you explain this to me? I don't understand how or why the coins would be consumed. What does this mean for the future of ETH? Is this a good or a bad thing? Please refer to the linked article within this email. And the article linked was from Decrypt, which is a great source for cryptocurrency information. The title of the article is EIP-1559, What Happens Next for Ethereum? EIP-1559 is a big upgrade to Ethereum, promising to rein in its volatile gas fees. But what does it mean for the network and its users? Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here in a small time. But uh, many people are aware that Ethereum is going through some major upgrades, a variety of different upgrades that are commonly referred to as Ethereum 2.0. Uh, there's been a hard fork, which means every single computer and miner on the network must update, upgrade to this hard fork, or they won't be compatible with the network anymore. So all these big changes. Uh, one of the big changes is switching to, uh, in addition to the proof of work, there's going to be proof of stake. Eventually, it'll all be proof of stake. Proof of work is when, in order to verify the transactions on the network, in order to create new coins, 
you have to first run computers and then prove that you are running these computers by solving a puzzle. That's proof of work. That's what Bitcoin does. That's what Ethereum has historically done. Uh, it has its setbacks. Elon Musk will tell you about environmental problems, but a significant majority of Bitcoin's miners are actually using sustainable means. Uh, and then contrast that with proof of stake, where in order to verify transactions, people are chosen to verify transactions based on how much of a given cryptocurrency they have staked. There's going to be some big changes uh, for Ethereum. In addition, there's something called a shard, which I laugh every time I say it, but a, a shard is a side chain that Ethereum is going to launch. So there's going to be the Ethereum main blockchain, and there's going to be multiple different side chains. This will just create more the ability for more volume to go through on the Bitcoin network. All right, well, let's get to this EIP-1559. So if you've used Ethereum, that's what's always important when you get into cryptocurrency to truly understand it, to use it, right? Some people can buy it on Coinbase and then just hold it in Coinbase, but it's always encouraged to move your cryptocurrency out of the exchange so you can get into a non-custodial wallet where no one owns your private keys, you have control over your money. But also when you use it, you kind of get a feel for it. Like you recognize, okay, Bitcoin actually isn't the best currency because these transaction fees are so high. Now, mind you, they're down to like 2 or $3 last I checked. But the same thing is the case with Ethereum. Ethereum is quickly becoming a very, very powerful platform. And many people are speculating that perhaps there could be a flippening in which the price of Ethereum, or at least the overall market cap of Ethereum, market cap is the price of each coin times the number of coins in circulation, where the market cap of Ethereum could surpass Bitcoin. And one of the big drivers of excitement and use of Bitcoin right now is what's called decentralized finance, right? That's when you have access to financial instruments, financial mechanisms that are completely decentralized. And rather than doing business with a bank or with some sort of exchange or even with cryptocurrency CFI like BlockFi or Celsius, you do business with a smart contract. You're literally doing business with a decentralized computer program. It's really cool. There's a whole wide variety of things you can do. For example, I just closed on 10 acres a couple months ago in a nice homestead. And my girlfriend, her family's coming over in October. We had plans to paint the house. She wanted to accelerate those plans because the family's coming over. So she's like, let's get the house painted. She got a quote. And I had some, I'd bought some Ethereum recently, and I didn't want to come out of pocket for my cash to pay for this. So I was like, you know what? Why don't I take my Ethereum, put it up as collateral in a smart contract, a decentralized finance smart contract, and then get a stablecoin loan? So I did just that using Compound. There's also MakerDAO. You put up your cryptocurrency as collateral. The smart contract generates stablecoins or any other cryptocurrency that they have available. And then you take the stable coins, you convert it to fiat, you pay for what you need to do, an improvement, an emergency, a new car, a down payment on a new house, whatever. Or maybe you could purchase more cryptocurrency, if you, but be careful being leveraged like that. And then when you pay back this loan, you can get access to your cryptocurrency again. It's really quite brilliant. And I'm doing it right now, and so far so good. So you can use your cryptocurrency stash, gain access to liquidity associated with that without having to sell your cryptocurrency, and you avoid a taxable event, which is really cool. Now, the problem, however, to get back to this EIP 1559 is every step of the way, there are all sorts of gas fees that really come into play. And while the rates are most definitely better than using a bank more often than not, 
you have to pay little transaction fees here and there, even to tie your MetaMask wallet, which is a Web 3.0 wallet, to tie your MetaMask wallet to the DeFi platform like MakerDAO or Compound. You have to sign a transaction. There's a fee there, six to eight bucks, right? Whenever I purchased more of the stablecoin, I used DAI with Crypto.com. So I put $1,000 into Crypto.com, purchased $1,000 worth of stablecoins, paid back part of my loan, there was like a $12 to $15 gas fee, right? So these are the transaction fees. So what EIP-1559 aims to do is create a base fee mechanism. It wants to give Ethereum users more information so they're not paying too much in gas fees, more than they need to to have their transaction confirmed by the network, and also so they're not paying too little in transaction fees so that their transaction never gets confirmed. They want to change it to where the miners aren't the ones setting the transaction fees. Rather, there's an algorithm that sets the transaction fees. Now, whenever there's a transaction that takes place on the Ethereum network, there's new Ethereum that's created. And so what EIP-1559 aims to do is burn some of that new Ethereum that's created. Burning a cryptocurrency essentially is when, uh, when the cryptocurrency itself the program that runs the cryptocurrency, it just eliminates the coins. So the coin is gone. It's no longer accessible on the blockchain. No one can send it to anyone. No one can receive it. So the implication of this is when there's a whole lot of transactions potentially on the network, there could be more Ethereum being burned than there is Ethereum being generated. Now, unlike Bitcoin, which has a 21 million coin cap, now, mind you, most of those coins have been lost. Many of them are controlled by Satoshi Nakamoto. They never moved at all. So really, there's actually going to be like 17 million coins. And a significant portion of those are already are already out, right? Because many of them are inaccessible, right? There isn't a cap necessarily on Ethereum, although that's set to be changed. So the idea is it's possible that more Ethereum will be burned than created, which would then begin to reduce the number of Ethereum coins in circulation, thus potentially making Ethereum deflationary. This change, EIP-1559, doesn't necessarily mean that Ethereum will be inflationary, but it does introduce a mechanism, I meant deflationary, does introduce a mechanism to where Ethereum could potentially be deflationary if all of the right factors are into place. And of course, when you have a deflationary asset that is reducing in supply, it has a tendency to go up in value, especially when there is a high demand. Contrast that with the United States dollars and other fiat currencies where they're just pumping them out by the trillions. The price, uh, the value of those units goes down. So this is a big deal. It's a big change. All of these big changes that are coming out for Ethereum are being reflected in the market price, which is currently surging. Last time I checked, it was over 2800 We could be reaching new all-time highs sooner than later. If Ethereum is able to figure out these transaction fees, it'll really open up the door to future investment. As there's many people, big investment firms, um, venture capitalists that want to invest in Ethereum development businesses that have been waiting on the sidelines to see if Ethereum could get its act together figuring out these transaction fees because they are a great hindrance to the future of decentralized finance because you're getting nickel and dimed throughout the way with all these transaction fees. So 
Assuming this can get solved and this London hard fork is a success and this EIP 1559 is implemented properly, we could see a lot of attention and a lot of action going into Ethereum. All right, so we are going to be talking about some of this decentralized finance stuff in the upcoming webinar that I'm going to be doing. Again, that's taking place next week. It's totally free. I'd love for you to be a part of it. You can register at buildwealthoptout.com. That's buildwealthoptout.com. All right, peace and freedom, guys. Thanks. So I don't have any idea, to be to be blunt, how well the long-term um, plan will work out for Ethereum with all of these changes. I have no idea. I will say this is a speculative investor. When this rolls out and it basically works, and it will, I have no reason to believe that it won't, I believe that you'll see Ethereum get near $10,000, if not over $10,000, very, very quickly once this is a done deal. And I think that as we get closer and closer to the finality of it, that will start in advance. I really do. Um, so I think that Ethereum is absolutely a solid short to midterm bet as an investor. I don't think it's going to surplant Bitcoin. I think the, the, the work being done with Bitcoin is, is a multi-layered approach, and it, it involves mostly leaving the, the core asset alone. And, and I've become less and less enamored with proof of stake over time. And I've, I've come to realize that if you, if you don't have conflict, then you don't want a blockchain. I mean, honestly, that a blockchain is a very inefficient way to do a thing if you don't have conflict for the thing. If it's about everybody agrees and there's no competition, then there are ways that are far more efficient than a blockchain. And we've, we've come to take blockchain and then being immutable and therefore being uncensorable. Um, in the end, you know, you can, let's say, multi-host a thing and not necessarily be blockchain. I, I really think what makes blockchain work is competition, and it's that competition that provides security. So I don't know that this is really going to be the end-all, be-all long-term. But I do think it will be enough to satisfy the market, and there is significant profit to be had still in Ethereum, and it it, it might blow right past ten grand. I think there's some people that kind of look at, you know, Ethereum hitting something like twenty thousand dollars the same way they kind of look at like Bitcoin hitting, you know, two hundred thousand dollars. Like it just isn't going to be a thing. It can't happen. Don't you believe that? Um, I'm not saying you should or shouldn't. I'm just saying that's. I have a significant amount of Ethereum. I bought a very, very, very long time ago. Uh, I bought it with Bitcoin profits, and I have not gotten rid of it. And there's a reason. Uh, I am well into the money on it, obviously, at this point, but I, I think that there is tremendous upside yet from ETH. Again, that's not an endorsement of the long-term plan. It's an assessment of the market. All right, with that, <clears throat> um, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I, I'm going to save my commentary on the quote uh, to, to go right into Song of the Day. So before I do that, I'm going to remind you guys that you can help support the show and the work that we do simply by doing your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you start your shopping there, no matter what you buy, you will help support us in the work that we do. 
The item of the day today that I'm recommending is the General Hydroponics Rapid Rooter Grow Plugs. Wait a minute, Jack. Didn't you just bring those around like two weeks ago? Yeah, and I brought them around about two weeks ago because I'm like, you know, we're heading into fall gardening season. It's time to get ready uh, for fall planting or transitioning into growing or whatever it is for you, depending on where you are and what your plans are. And I was right. It is a good time to do that. I also said that they had been going in and out of stock, and they were in stock, so maybe it's a good time to pick them up. Um, if you didn't, you made a good call. Why? Because they're on sale for half off today. It's like nine bucks and change a bag. Um, these things, again, have gone out of stock many, many times uh, since COVID started. Everybody and their mother's gotten into growing their own food. These are the easy button. They are the best grow plugs I have ever used. And as I said, you can look at them and think, well, maybe they're a little bit pricey or whatever. But if you reuse them, they, you know, every time you use them, they cost half what they did before. I've reused them as many as four to five times, depending on how aggressive you let roots get before you kind of harvest out a plant. And all I do with mine, I throw them on top of one of my uh, Evan Flow beds that has, has worms in it. And the worms clean them, and in a couple days, they're completely cleaned out. If you have a worm bin, you can throw them on top of a worm bin. Honest to God, you can put them out in the sun. You can let them kind of dry out. You can knock the, the dry roots off them. Then you can soak them with a little water uh, with a little bit of uh, hydrogen peroxide in it to kind of sterilize them, and then store them in a bag moist. And you can use them again and again and again. If they get a little bit of mold on them or a little bit of algae on them, hit them with a little bit higher uh, concentration of... Uh, Hydrogen peroxide, soak them in that, put them back in the back. Um, they are just something that really should be reused. And when you start reusing them and you're paying nine bucks for 50, they're about as cheap as it gets with the amount of food you can grow out of them. And this is also the way I look at this. These things are not going to go bad. They're not food. They grow food. They're basically some peat and some binders and, and they make them a little sponge. So if you buy them now and you don't use them for a year, so what? Big whoop. So when something has been in limited supply and it goes on sale and it has a pretty much forever shelf life, it's a good time to stock up. So check them out again. They're called Rapid Rooter, R-A-P-I-D-R-O-O-T-E-R dot, uh, not dot anything. Uh, they're available at uh, tspaz.com. And again, if it's there, I own it. I spent my money on it. I bought it. I'd buy it again, or I wouldn't recommend it to you. With that, let's uh, let's wrap up with our quote of the day and our song of the day. Um, the song of the day is by Jimmy Buffett, and it is called Defying Gravity. I have played it before. It's another one of his really great kind of soft ballad type songs. It's another one of those songs that unless you're a fan, you don't know the song. People that think they know Jimmy Buffett, they knew a few crossover country songs. They know Margaritaville, uh, Pencil Thin Mustache, Get Junk and Screw, and Grapefruit Juicy Fruit. Like that's usually like, that. those are people, yeah, I know Jim. No, you don't. No. Uh, Jimmy Buffett's catalog of music is hundreds of songs. Hundreds of songs. And this one is from uh, mid-70s, I think 74 or 76, one or the other. And it, it absolutely is another song that has kind of a fatalistic look at life. Um, this song kind of says, you know, we live on this big round ball, and someday for us it will all stop. Let's not take ourselves too seriously. Enjoy the ride. And if you look at Buffett's music from the, the mid-70s, there's a lot of it. 
There's a lot of it. I wonder why we ever go home that I played for you yesterday. Jimmy's favorite, his favorite song that he did himself, right, also has some of that fatalism in it. Now, before we talk about that and where a huge transition is only a few years away at this point in Buffett's music, let's talk about uh, Harvey Fierstein's quote of the day. Never be bullied into silence. Never allow yourself to be made a victim. Accept no one's definition of your life. Define yourself. I have always had a little bit of an aversion to people that speak negatively about those who do not have children, grandchildren, etc. I don't, I, and I don't want to come off that way today. But I want to say that you are more likely to think the way of this quote if you have children, or at least there's descendants in your family. Maybe they're your brother or sister's kids or what have you, nieces and nephews, that you look at and you think about them waking up one day after, after you fall, after you're gone, after your ride on Jimmy Buffett's big round ball has gone away. It is a lot harder to bully into silence someone who is thinking about, one day my grandchildren will be here without me and I won't be here to speak for them then, so I'm going to speak for them now. And that does fill into this song by Buffett, Defying Gravity, and where it goes. It was about 1980 that if you start looking at Jimmy Buffett's music, he went from a lot of fatalism and a lot of just like real hard party, hardcore party music, and kind of this fatalistic, hey, when it's over, it's over thing, into things that were much more optimistic and looking toward the future. Instead of just telling stories as they were, but telling stories as they could become. And do you know why? In 1979, a little girl was born named Savannah, Savannah Jane Buffett. And it wasn't so long after that occurrence, a song came out by Buffett called Little Miss Magic. And it was years later... Um, Beach House on the Moon was written with uh, two songs that were dedicated to Cameron, James Buffett, his son. But it was 1979 forward that Buffett's fatalism pretty much departed from his music. And when he did sing, like there's songs <clears throat> that I've not played by Buffett. I, maybe I should do another Buffett uh, week next week of all kinds of music that like you would never even guess who it is. There's songs like Ace. Uh, that are, you know, if social justice was what it promised, that's what they would be. Ace is about a guy that, you know, life just handed bad things to. And they never got a chance. But he kept on trying. Buffett's music that was of the negative switched to still being optimistic. Because he had kids. And I don't know if that happens to everybody. And I don't know that everybody needs it. But I think when we play the averages, we are more likely, likely to listen to Harvey Fierstein when he says, never be bullied into silence. Never allow yourself to be made a victim. Accept no one's definition of your life. Define yourself. Those words were spoken a long time ago. But boy, they're written almost perfectly for today. What we're being told on every level is that either you're a victim or you're a victimizer. 
And it's been very easy for these people to manipulate the youth of today. When I say youth of today, I mean 20, 30-year-olds who have no children and no plans to ever have children. To scare them. Because they think they're the most important thing in their lives. Because, frankly, they are. Frankly, they are. There's a lot of virtue signal about caring about others, but what it really comes down to is when people do not have future generations to think about, then all they actually think about is the current generation. They talk about the future, but they do so very much as fatalists. And it's one of the reasons I think we are allowing so many things to be taken from us. Because all the person that's never going to have any children, never really even thinks, like I said, about nephews and nieces and things like that, that just only thinks about like this period of time that they're on. Does this bother me? Does this hurt me? Does this harm me? We need to think about the future generations. And I don't think there's any way that you can think about that more concretely than have a name and a face that goes with that future. For myself, it's Tegan and Braylon, my grandchildren at this point, that I think of when I refuse to be bullied into silence, when I continue to speak the truth, knowing that someday I may be deplatformed from some of my biggest syndication uh, platforms like iTunes, because I speak the truth, and I don't hold back. But I'm not going to be bullied into silence. I'm not going to allow myself to be made a victim. I will accept no one's definition of my life. I have defined myself, and I will continue to do so. And I still love music like I'm about to play for you. I think there's a place for both. I think that fatalism is a thing. But fatalism with the realization that, you know, I never dream I will fall, but one day I know I will. But I know someone else will be taking the ride at that point and what I do today matters for them tomorrow with that it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast I live on a big round ball I never do dream I may